The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. So it's already causing to have a lot of displacement of their populations internally within their own borders. Some of their populations have left to go to other countries in terms of trying to find places where they can have more security, not at risk of experiencing these impacts of climate change. And so I think for these countries that are most most at risk, they are providing tremendous leadership in terms of setting the tone of how we should address climate change and really exercising outsized power compared to their relative size to other more powerful, more populous states. And it's really a tremendous testament to their leadership that they're willing to push these efforts forward. But in in some senses, they don't really have that much of a choice because of the tremendous danger that they all face from the impacts of climate change. I'm Tyler McBrien, Managing Editor of Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, April 17th, 2023. The Republic of Vanuatu, a small island nation in the South Pacific, just won a big victory in New York City. At the end of March, the UN General Assembly voted to adopt the request for an advisory opinion of the International Court of Justice on the obligations of states in respect of climate change. To talk through what Vanuatu's General Counsel called, quote, a diplomatic feat of Herculean proportions, I sat down with Melissa Stewart, an assistant professor of law designate at the University of Hawaii at Manoa, and author of a recent Lawfare article on the advisory opinion request and its potential risks and rewards. We discussed how an idea that began in an environmental law class in Fiji made it to the highest court in the world, what the ICJ might clarify or not, other efforts in international law to address climate change, and how territorial loss and other destructive effects from climate change could upend our traditional conception of statehood as we know it. It's the Lawfare Podcast, April 17th. Vanuatu's big climate win with Melissa Stewart. So, Melissa, you may have seen an article from April 5th in The Nation written by the lead counsel to Vanuatu. Uh, Their first line they wrote, quote, a small miracle happened in New York on March 29th. So I want to start there. What happened in New York on March 29th? Sure. You're right. There was an article in The Nation that was written by two main lead counsels for Vanuatu, Julian Agon and Margareta Rowinke Singh. Um, they are from Blue Ocean Law, and they've been working with Vanuatu on this advisory opinion effort that recently was adopted by the General Assembly at the United Nations. So on March 29th, the UN General Assembly adopted a resolution on a request for an advisory opinion of the International Court of Justice on the obligations of states in respect of climate change. Now, this was 
indeed a small miracle. It was the first request for an advisory opinion that was adopted by consensus. So that meant that there was no vote. There was no um, state that was objecting to its adoption. And it had, by the time it was adopted, over 130 state co-sponsors to the resolution. So it was a tremendous achievement just in that respect to get it through the General Assembly. And what does the resolution say? Um, You know, what exactly is an advisory opinion? And, you know, what sort of process will this kick into motion? Yeah, so an advisory opinion is jurisdiction that's set up under the United Nations Charter under and under Article 65 of the International Court of Justice statute. And it gives the court the power to give an opinion. It's a not a binding legal opinion, and it's different from contentious cases between states, but it gives an opinion to anybody that's been duly authorized by um, the convention to seek an advisory opinion. So that includes the General Assembly, um, the Security Council, and a UN organ or specialized agency that has been authorized by the General Assembly to request an advisory opinion of the court on legal questions that arise within the scope of their activities. So advisory opinion, like I said, it's not binding, um, but it is an opinion that has a legal significance and has legal effect. So an advisory opinion becomes a part of the jurisprudence of the International Court of Justice, and the answers that they give to the bodies that are requesting the opinion is directed towards those bodies. So while Vanuatu was really leading this effort to request an advisory opinion from the Court of Justice, the answer will not be directed towards Vanuatu and the core states and the co-sponsors of of the resolution, but it will actually be addressed to the General Assembly giving advice on, on the question. And the question that they were asking in this particular resolution was really about the obligations of states in respect of climate change. And we can talk more detail about the substance of the questions. Yeah, let's get into it. Um, what did the UN General Assembly ask the court to clarify? Uh, what are what are some of these legal questions that you just mentioned? So the UN General Assembly asked the court to clarify the obligations of states. It asked two questions in reference to various different bodies of international law. So it asked the court to clarify what are the obligations of states under international law to ensure the protection of the of the climate system and other parts of the environment from the emission of greenhouse gases. But it also asks what are the legal consequences of these obligations for states where they have caused significant harm to the climate system and other parts of the environment. And it really framed the questions in terms of what are the human rights implications? So thinking about the impacts on peoples and individuals of present and future generations. And it also was framed in the sense of thinking about the populations that are particularly vulnerable to the impacts of climate change. So this includes in particular, small island developing states and other nations due to their geographic location or their particular circumstances that leaves them particularly vulnerable to climate change. That's really f- helpful. And I'm curious, uh, y- your your piece does a great job, uh, your piece in Lawfare that was published sort of on the eve of, of the passing of the resolution. Uh, I'm curious how we got here. Uh, it's an interesting story, I think, the the campaign behind Vanuatu, uh, the origin story of this this resolution. Could you walk us through a bit of you know how we got here today. Sure. So the story of how we got here today starts in some ways even prior to this current effort to seek an advisory opinion from the International Court of Justice. 
Back in 2011, Palau, along with the Marshall Islands, announced that it intended to seek an advisory opinion from the International Court on Climate Change. And of course, at that time, we didn't have the Paris Agreement, and there was a little bit more of a lack of consensus about what um, the international community should do in response to the threat that climate change was really posing for the international community. And at the time, powerful states, including the United States, really resisted any effort to seek an advisory opinion from the International Court of Justice on this issue. And so it never made it as far as this current effort. So it never made it to the General Assembly to take action on a potential draft resolution. But that effort really continued to be discussed among academics. And for this recent effort, successful effort to seek an advisory opinion from the International Court of Justice really began back in um, 2019, when a group of students at a law school in Vanuatu really met and started thinking about what they could do and what needs to be done to respond to the climate crisis. And through their advocacy was able to get the government of Vanuatu to agree to take this effort forward. And so it really took off from there. It was this grassroots effort by students that I think, you know, a lot of students at law schools around the United States and around the world can really take take heed to thinking about what impact they can have in terms of their own ability to advocate. So Vanuatu was a state that decided to take this forward and they collaborated what became with what became a group of about 18 states, including Vanuatu, which was considered to be the core group, to think about how to frame the question and frame the legal question that would be going before the International Court of Justice in terms of what they wanted to focus on. Um, and I understand in listening to interviews by counsel to Vanuatu and by the permanent representative to the United Nations of Vanuatu, this was a really extensive process, that the process of writing the question took over two years. They had a team of deeply experienced international lawyers working on this question. They had a group of technical experts. They met dozens of times, and the core group was able to weigh in on the substance of the question in terms of what would be something that might gain a lot of support and acceptance at the General Assembly. So if you're thinking about how to frame a question that might get support from countries as diverse as Mexico, Australia, Fiji, Tuvalu, the United Kingdom, they were really trying to gain a lot of input from a broad range of stakeholders while also keeping to the core purpose of having a question that would be impactful and hopefully push the dialogue forward on what needs to be done in terms of addressing the impacts of climate change. Yeah, it's a it's a pretty stunning success story. And I think one that I'm sure is very instructive to climate activists who will, who will study it closely from this transition from grassroots activism all the way to the highest court in the world. But I want to drill down a bit on the on the actors here, uh, sort of getting at the question of why Vanuatu, why Palau, why the Marshall Islands, the Maldives, why these specific nations are so urgently pushing the needle forward on climate security. Uh, what is the unique threat posed to these specific states in terms of climate change? And, and you know, sort of why, why are they at the vanguard of, of this kind of action? Sure. So I think it's important to keep in mind, and as everybody, most people well know, that the impacts of climate change are not felt equally. And it's largely the case that those that are at greatest risk 
to feeling the impacts of climate change are those that have been least responsible for the greenhouse gas emissions that have led, led us to global warming in this age. And I, and I think it's important to think about where they're situated geographically and what their vulnerabilities are. So when thinking about countries like Manuatu, Tuvalu, Kiribati, the Maldives, and the Marshall Islands, among other states, these are all small, low-lying island states that are, are at great risk and are already feeling the impacts of sea level rise due to global warming. So Vanuatu is a state with several low-lying atoll islands that are at risk of losing up to 75% of their landmass due to sea level rise. And islands such as Kiribati, Tuvalu, the Marshall Islands are at risk of actually losing their entire territory due to sea level rise. That's because their territory is, for the four states that I just mentioned, really only a maximum of 10 meters above sea level. So if you have sea level rise that's anticipated of increasing by as much as one meter or more by the end of the century, and these states are in areas of the world that are experiencing higher than average levels of sea level rise, so you might have them experiencing up to two meters of sea level rise by the end of the century, um, they're really at risk of losing the entirety of their territory. And if not losing the entirety of their territory, they're at risk of vast areas of their territory becoming uninhabitable. Now, this could happen because of the erosion of coastlines or the incursion of salt water leading to a lack of potable drinkable water and reducing the, the availability of habitable land. So for these states, the threat of climate change is really existential. So it's already caused them to have a lot of displacement of their populations internally within their own borders. Some of their populations have left to go to other countries in terms of trying to find places where they can have more security, not at risk of experiencing these impacts of climate change. And so I think for these countries that are most, most at risk, they are providing tremendous leadership in terms of setting the tone of how we should address climate change and really exercising outsized power compared to their relative size to other more powerful, more populous states. And it's really a tremendous testament to their leadership that they're willing to push these efforts forward. But in, in some senses, they don't really have that much of a choice because of the tremendous danger that they all face from the impacts of climate change. Yeah, there's an interesting irony there, I think, that uh, these states who have disproportionately suffered from climate change are now leading efforts, which, uh, if successful, will benefit everyone, <laughs> even the, um, the the initial emitters. You know, I think you, you did a, a great job laying out uh, the existential threat posed by climate change in every sense of the word ex existential. I want to give you some space to talk about your forthcoming uh, journal article on some of these novel uh, international legal questions that are raised by the potential loss of territory, uh, what it means for statehood, sovereignty, and sort of identity as a nation and, and legitimacy as a state in the international system if you are to lose you know, your entire territory. Yeah, I'd be happy to. So the article that I wrote, it's called Cascading Consequences of Sinking States, and it is forthcoming in the Stanford Journal of International Law. And I'm really focusing on the four states that I mentioned in the previous comment, Tuvalu, Kiribati, the Maldives, and the Marshall Islands, 
that are really at risk of losing the entirety of their territory or the entirety of their habitable territory due to sea level rise and with it, their permanent population. And what are some of the implications in terms of how we think about international law, how we conceptualize statehood, and then what are the cascading consequences for these states and for the broader international community? So in terms of statehood, one of the things that I think is interesting, and this is certainly a conversation that is happening among international lawyers, it's um, being studied by the International Law Commission, it's being studied by the International Law Association, and has been written about by a number of scholars. Um, when we think about what is a traditional conception of a state under international law, traditionally, we think of it as having a permanent population, a defined territory, and a government that has a capacity to enter into relations with other states. Um, this definition is from the Montevideo Convention. And the way that we conceptualize what we consider to be a state generally falls along that definition. But I think there's some debate in terms of whether or not that definition applies only in terms of the creation of states, like when a state emerges, or if it also applies at the time that a state might become extinct. Now, in history and in international law, it's never been the case that a state has become extinct due to purely physical causes. So you might have a state that emerges when another state collapses, but you never, you never have a situation where a state loses its territory due to a natural disaster or something like being taken over to sea level rise. So international law doesn't really have an answer in terms of what happens to states that lose their habitable territory. And the states that have been affected have been strongly advocating that we should consider that there is a presumption of the continuity of the state under international law. But even if we presume that a state continues under international law after it loses its territory and permanent population, there are questions as to what happens then, right? So if a state no longer has habitable territory, where is the government going to be located in order to exercise its core functions? Um, states have already purchased territory in, um, within the territories of other states. But that doesn't necessarily mean that with the purchase of territory, they gain sovereignty over that territory. So they would still be subject to the sovereignty of another state. And it wouldn't necessarily be the case that their population could relocate to an area of territory that was purchased from another state. So there's a lot of questions about how this would work in practice if we would recognize what um, my colleague at the University of Hawaii, Maxine Burkett, has termed to be a nation ex situ or a deterritorialized state and how long that would continue. And one of the things that I argue for in my article is that if we're looking at reconceptualizing what we consider to be a state, we should really think a little bit more broadly beyond how this impacts these four states. So there are other um, non-self-governing territories, the majority of which are islands, that are in a similar position to the four states that are at risk of losing their territory because their territory is only five meters above sea level. So an example of this is Tokelau. It's a non-self-governing territory, dependent territory of New Zealand. And it, similar to the Maldives, has only five meters above sea level. So it's at great risk of losing its entire territory. So if we decide that, you know, the 
Montevideo Convention definition applies to the creation of states, how does that impact non-self-governing territories that are yet to exercise their right to self-determination? Will they be able to exercise that right if they lose some of those essential elements of statehood prior to the exercise. So I'm really arguing that we should think a little bit more broadly and more creatively if we're really going to revisit what our fundamental notions of statehood mean. And then in terms of thinking about how this impacts the population of the state, there's a lot of potential ramifications. So there's a framework that that regulates the displacement of persons across borders. So we have the Refugee Convention, um, we have international human rights law, and we have a number of instruments that address the rights of migrants and the rights of stateless persons. But there's really major gaps in these legal frameworks when it comes to addressing persons who are displaced by climate change across international borders. So if someone is finds themselves in the territory of another state, they don't necessarily qualify for refugee status if the underlying source of their displacement is due to climate change. Their protection considerations should obviously be assessed on an individualized basis, and there might be reasons why they would separately qualify for refugee status if, for example, there's a natural disaster and a state is providing the provision of assistance in a discriminatory fashion, there might be a claim to refugee status there. But if there's no other underlying claim that the person has a well-founded fear of persecution under the Refugee Convention, they wouldn't qualify for protection as a refugee or recognition as a refugee. And then under international human rights law, there is a right to not be sent back to a place where you have there's a threat to your right to life or there you have a risk that you may face cruel, inhumane or degrading treatment or punishment. So this is sort of the obligations of states not to refer a person back to the territory um, where they face these risks. And the development of the recognition of this right in the context of climate change, it has been recognized by the Human Rights Committee that there are these protections in the context of climate change, but they've never found that the facts are sufficient to provide that protection. So there's been a, a couple of cases by the Human Rights Committee that really um, have, in my mind, made it a little bit harder for populations of these states to make claims that they qualify for human rights protection because the facts that were presented in those cases illustrated that there was a risk within 10 to 15 years that their states would be uninhabitable. And that was not sufficient to say that a state that had sent them back to their country of origin had uh, violated um, the non-refoulement obligations. So there's really a gap in terms of what international law provides in terms of protection for people who are displaced. And then when it comes to a right to a nationality, when you're thinking about the continued existence of these states, if you have a state that is continues to be recognized by other states, but its government is sort of weakened because it's not within its home territory um, and its population has been displaced, they really have no right under international law to acquire a new nationality in those circumstances. And their own domestic laws might prevent them from having dual nationality. So people who have been displaced across borders due to climate change, there is a risk that they will either become 
stateless under the law, um, or they might be de facto stateless because they don't have an effective nationality that they can rely on. And under international law and human rights, that link between an individual and their state provided through their nationality is really critical in terms of accessing protection under international human rights law. So this is a very long-winded way of talking about my paper, but the paper that um, is really trying to argue for a really robust conversation about not just the specific situation that these populations find themselves in, but a more robust reframing of international law protections for individuals and protections for states that find themselves in in these circumstances. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information. Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I wanna tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there and these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes 
any personal information you don't want online and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code LAWFARE20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. Yeah, thank you for that. I want to bring the advisory opinion back into the conversation. I wonder if first you could just sort of walk through what happens next now that this resolution was passed. And then if you could speculate a bit on sort of on what basis uh, the court will render its opinion uh, and whether it will get to some of these um, interesting questions you raised, uh, whether you'll get some clarity from the court. And, you know, I guess sort of what I'm asking you is to, to game out a few scenarios of what the advisory opinion will ultimately look like, you know, maybe from from its narrowest to its most expansive? Sure. So what happens next is that there will be a written request for an advisory opinion um, that's uh, addressed to the registrar of the International Court of Justice. That will probably happen within the next month. And then after that, the court can draw up a list of states or international organizations that might be able to furnish information on the question before the court. This would be state parties that are members of the General Assembly, members of the United Nations um, that requested this opinion. Um, This might also be international organizations that can provide pertinent information in terms of what the court should consider when deciding its opinion. There's usually a series of steps where written statements are offered. Um, There can be responses to the written statements. There will likely be oral proceedings well in advance of an opinion being given. In terms of the timing of this, it's hard to say exactly. Um, And looking at prior proceedings, it looks like it could be possible that we would get through all of those intermediate steps to a final opinion by the end of 2024, but it might be a little bit later later than that. And we can talk a little bit about what some of other, there are parallel proceedings that are happening in two other jurisdictions, what might happen with the timing of those other proceedings as well. Now, in terms of the substance of the decision, I think there's a number of things that the court could do. And I think this is where in in the piece that I wrote 
on Lawfare was talking about sort of the risks of undertaking this decision. So we could get a decision from the court that is fairly conservative. So the court could decide that it's going to just restate some of the obligations of states so they have a duty to cooperate in their multilateral negotiations, um, or that they have a duty to abide by their previous commitments. So if we're thinking about what previous commitments states have made, thinking about what their commitments are under the Paris Agreement, we know that the commitments that have been made under the Paris Agreement are not sufficient in terms of limiting global warming to 2.0 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. We have reports from the United Nations that there's the gap between what states have said and the policies that they need to implement is really only 0.2 degrees. So we are currently on track for 2.8 degrees of warming by the end of the century. And if states implement all of their policies under their nationally determined contributions, this will only lower warming to 2.6 degrees. So we're really missing the mark even under our current commitments. So if the court really just sort of says, states must abide by these commitments, it really won't make much of a difference in terms of changing the trajectory that we're on um, in terms of global warming. Um, now, there is a hope that the opinion will be more progressive, that the opinion will say that states have an obligation of due diligence and under the precautionary principle, states must do more and be more ambitious in setting their nationally determined contributions. Also, the way that the request is framed, it calls upon or recalls different international human rights frameworks. So the court could recognize an intergenerational human rights element um, that really integrates human rights considerations with climate responsibilities that would be far more progressive than I think the current law states. There's also the potential that it could be a much more radical opinion. It's unlikely there would be a radical opinion, but they the court could recognize that historic emitters have an obligation to really redress some of the, the harms and compensate other states for climate damage. So I think there's a range of potential options that could happen in this opinion. Um, the other thing to keep in mind that's important that I think has people a little bit on their toes is thinking about what the court does with the question that is given to it from the General Assembly. So the court has within its discretion the ability to reframe the question, to narrow the scope of the question. And it has certainly done this in prior advisory opinions in ways that really changed the nature of what was being asked and changed the outcome. So I think once, once it's out of the hands of the General Assembly, there will be ways that states can influence what the court decides through their written statements um, and through any oral advocacy that they have at oral proceedings. But the court has a lot of discretion in terms of how it frames the questions it's being asked, how it interprets the questions, and then the decision that it ultimately gives. Yeah, just to pick up on that last point you made there, you mentioned a, a cautionary tale in your article, in your lawfare article um, related to a question around nuclear weapons, I believe. Could you briefly explain that that cautionary tale that you get into? Sure. So an advisory opinion called the legality of the threat and, or use of nuclear weapons, I think there was hope by the advocates that brought this opinion that the court would have a sort of authoritative statement that the use of 
nuclear weapons was illegal under international law in all circumstances. But that was really not what the court ended up saying. It wouldn't find in all circumstances that it was illegal to use nuclear weapons. And it really um, gave a decision that it was possible that when the very survival of a state was at stake, it couldn't rule out that there might be a use of nuclear weapons that was legal under under international law. And so this, this was an, a bit of an equivocation by the court that I think advocates did not expect. Um, Philippe Sands talked about this on a recent podcast put out by the European Journal of International Law. He was counsel on that case and really talked about this as a cautionary tale um, in terms of a decision that didn't not only did it end up not being helpful, but it is potentially harmful. And he also gave the example that some of the language that Russian President Vladimir Putin has used recently, as well as Russian uh, language that can be found in Russia's military doctrine, has language that is evocative of this advisory opinion that allows Russia to reserve the right to use nuclear weapons if the very existence of the state is in jeopardy. So I think in terms of the progress that states were hoping to make in terms of outlawing the use of nuclear weapons, it, the advisory opinion mechanism was not really um, the way forward there. So I think there can be some unintended consequences. But one of the things that I want to mention about the nuclear weapons opinion ties more into my um, the article that I have that's forthcoming relates to you know, the differences and the sort of imbalance that we see under international law um, in terms of protecting a state that's survival is at stake when the causes of that risk risk or threat to their survival are found in the context of aggression versus climate change. So certainly you would not have states that are at risk of um, extinction, arguing that they should be allowed to exercise a right of self-defense as they would be in the context of aggression. But there's really no parallel rights that they have to exercise when the very survival of their state is is at risk. And so, you know, there's this huge imbalance we see in terms of looking at the way the international community is coalescing around the situation of a Ukraine where their territorial integrity is um, being violated by armed aggression by Russia versus states that have their territorial integrity at risk due to sea level rise. And really their survival is truly at risk and they face an existential threat. So I think it's important to think about the ways in which we value state survival and the continuity of states in these different circumstances and what is owed to states that are really facing this tremendous irrevocable loss. Yeah, one thing I've really appreciated about your uh, your Lawfare article and your forthcoming article is is the, the ways in which it points out these shortcomings in international law in addressing uh, the existential threat posed by climate change and also uh, the power and the potential of international law in, in addressing climate change. You also hinted at uh, two other advisory opinion efforts that are at play here, uh, one in uh, the Inter- Inter-American Court of Human Rights and the other at the International Tribunal for the Law of the Sea. Can you place this ICJ advisory opinion in the context of those other two advisory opinion efforts? How might they complement each other? How might they interact? Sure. So there's definitely a hope that the three efforts will complement each other, right? And I think 
I'm not sure there's ever been quite a coordinated effort, or even if it's uncoordinated, a, an instance where there are three different advisory opinions proceeding in parallel on essentially the same or similar subject matter. So there is the first advisory opinion effort that came out in a sequence of these three was the one before the International Tribunal for the Law of the Sea, the ITLOS. So this was brought by a small group of states, this called the Commission of Small Island States on Climate Change and International Law. They had concluded an agreement that gave um, jurisdiction for the International Tribunal of the Law of the Sea to issue an advisory opinion. And it's similar to the questions asked under the ICJ, but it's really focusing on the obligations of state parties to the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea. So it's much more focused on law of the sea rather than international law writ large. So it's important when thinking about these three different advisory opinion efforts, what is what is the jurisdiction of the different courts and tribunals? So the International Court of Justice is a court of general jurisdiction. It's a principal judicial organ of the United Nations, whereas ITLOS is the judicial, it's a tribunal for um, that governs disputes under the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea. So it's really more a court of limited jurisdiction. Um, so the question that was posed by these six states, that includes Vanuatu is one of the six states, it includes Palau, it includes some of these same um, most affected states that are facing the impacts of climate change. Um, they're asking ITLOS to articulate what are the obligations of state parties under the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea to prevent, reduce, and control pollution of the marine environment in relation to the effects of climate change that are caused by greenhouse gas emissions. And it's also asking the court, what are the obligations of states to protect and preserve the marine environment in relation to climate change impacts, including ocean warming, sea level rise, and ocean acidification. So that request was asked, I, I believe, on December 12th, 2022. And then about a month later in January, the governments of Chile and Colombia asked, submitted a request to the Inter-American Court of Human Rights um, asking to clarify the scope of states' obligations in their individual and collective dimension to respond to the climate emergency within the framework of international human rights law. Their question is quite expansive. Um, it has several different subparts um, and touches on um, the rights of migrants that are displaced. It touches on various different human rights obligations to vulnerable populations and will be proceeding forward at, at that court. And again, the jurisdiction of that court is under the Inter-American um, Convention on Human Rights. And also they generally interpret those obligations under broader human rights frameworks and obligations. So in thinking of the three, looking at the question that's put before the International Court of Justice, there are references to international human rights law in that question, including the Universal Declaration on Human Rights. And it also references what are obligations under the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea. So it's very broad in terms of what law it's asking the court to draw upon, whereas the request to ITLOS is really focusing on UNCLOS, the request to the Inter-American Court of Human Rights is focusing on the obligations under the Inter-American system and what are the state's obligations in respect to international human rights. Now, these opinions are proceeding in parallel. 
There are estimates about when opinions will be given. Written submissions are due um, before ITLOS in June of this year. Written submissions are due to the Inter-American Court of Human Rights in August. Looking on past case timelines, it looks like we might get an opinion from ITLOS by the end of 2024. Council to Chile recently said that they think that the Inter-American Court of Human Rights is likely to move more slowly. Um, So it's unlikely that we will have an opinion from the Inter-American Court prior to the opinion from ITLOS or the ICJ. There is a chance that there will be decisions issued in short succession between ITLOS and the ICJ, although there's a sense among um, council advising states and different lawyers that ITLOS will likely move more quickly than an international court of justice, allowing the international court of justice to sort of at least see, if not react to what the international tribunal on the law of the sea does. And I've heard in statements from council to Vanuatu and other states, and as well as ambassadors that are working on these issues, particularly when there is overlap between state parties to COSIS and those that have worked on the general assembly resolution, that there's coordination among between lawyers that are working on both opinions. So I think there's there's definitely an effort to make sure that statements, written statements by states are consistent across various different efforts. But even if there's coordination among lawyers, the tribunals have very different compositions. The judges are different. And so they might approach these questions differently. So there's certainly a risk that there might be opinions that rather than clarify the obligations of states in the context of climate change, if we have decisions that are contradictory, it might actually end up muddying the waters. So even if we have different tribunals that are trying to be ambitious in the um, opinions that they give, they might say things that are in some ways contradictory. And there is a risk that states that are more opposed to this effort or want to do the least in terms of fulfilling their obligations under the Paris Agreement or um, reducing their their global emissions will look at the least ambitious statement from one of the three tribunals and say, well, we're complying with international law, even if it's not the most ambitious statement. So I think there is there's potential that if we have strong, consistent statements across the board from all three tribunals, that it will really do a lot in terms of pushing the conversation forward, giving states a common language in which to discuss their negotiations when they meet every every year for the conference of the parties. But there's also a, a risk that it will it will not clarify and it will muddy the waters a bit. So while there's a lot to celebrate in terms of the historic nature and the General Assembly resolution, there is a reason to be a little bit cautious until we see what the final outcome is. Yeah, I think you preempted uh, my next question, which uh, is probably one of the biggest questions on the minds of our listeners uh, in that, you know, just how big of a deal is this opinion? You quote, I would say, a very high profile skeptic uh, in your article uh, in John Kerry, who said, quote, Vanuatu is sort of just uh, jumping ahead and going to court in this case. So, you know, what, what do you see as the broader significance of the advisory opinion moving forward to the ICJ? Uh, is this a case for uh, the climate optimists or perhaps the climate pessimists? Um, that's a good question. I mean, I think 
I think both climate optimists and climate pessimists can see something in these in these efforts. I think I sort of view myself as an optimistic realist, so I'm a little bit cynical in my take, not not necessarily on these efforts, but in terms of what we are going to be able to accomplish. I think that the reports that are coming out of the IPCC, um, even on March 20th, not so long ago, on the synthesis of report of the sixth assessment report, the situation that we find ourselves in is dire. We are on track to use the entirety of our carbon budget to avert warming of 1.5 degrees by the end of the decade. We're estimated that there's a greater than 50% chance that uh, global warming will exceed 1.5 degrees. And we're just, we're simply not doing enough. So I think there are people that think skeptically that no matter no matter what this decision is from any of these three tribunals, it will really not fundamentally change the conversation. And when you have states like the United States that are really resistant, not only to sort of signing on to efforts like this, but resistant to advancing the law, it's hard to see where progress is going to be made. Um, And we saw this in two ways. Um, in the past few days. So two days ago at the Human Rights Council, there was a resolution passed on a right to healthy environment. And, you know, I think the statement by the United States in that case was really um, not helpful in terms of thinking about what the obligations are. So they, they reaffirmed the human right to a clean, healthy, and sustainable environment. And the statement from the United States Ambassador Michelle Taylor um, said that while they support that, we really have to recognize that until there's you know a transparent process where governments have consented to a binding international framework to recognize this right, there's no right under customary international law. So the United States in that instance is really, even though it didn't prevent that resolution from passing by consensus was really clear that they wanted to, in their words, disassociate from the consensus that was reached in that case. And similarly, after the passing of the General Assembly resolution, the United States expressed their serious concerns about the process and that it would really undermine collective efforts um, and they wanted to proceed diplomatically. We also saw statements by the United States and the United Kingdom that they wanted to look at what are the responsibilities of states going forward, not looking back historically. So it's sort of a clue into how states are going to frame their written written statements and how they might approach oral arguments. So I think, is this a case for, for climate skeptics or optimists? I mean, hopefully, if you want to be optimistic, there there's never been such coordinated effort and seeming consensus among states that more has to be done. The question is, will the largest emitters of greenhouse gases do what needs to be done in terms of cutting cutting our emissions and avoiding the worst outcomes of climate change? Well, I fancy myself uh, a cautious optimist or an optimistic realist as well. So a note of cautious optimism seems like a good note to end on to me. So Melissa, thank you so much for taking the time. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm so glad to be with you here today. Thanks for having me. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com lawfare. 
You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for other shows, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath. Our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patia Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Noam Osband of Go Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening.